Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim in the name of Allah the most gracious ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. And welcome to uh, another live Thursday's Drive Time Show here from the Voice of Islam Radio. You're joined by myself, Salman, and I shall be with you, God willing, until 6 p.m. today, where we will be discussing two very interesting topics, as always. Um, the topics that we have for you today are cancer risk and the regional inequalities that are related to this. And in the second hour, we will be discussing generational gap, difference of opinions on Israel and Palestine. So, as I said, two very interesting, very important topics. Um, Important to raise awareness about these topics, to understand. And uh, obviously, as always, we will give you an Islamic take on these two topics and explain how Islam, even today, is a very, very relevant religion that has the answers to all of our questions, all our difficulties, and that the God of Islam, Allah the Almighty, is as merciful as he used to be thousands of years ago. You can obviously uh, contact us on our landline, which is 0208-687-7878. That is 0208-687-7878. Or um, visit us on our socials at Voice of Islam UK. Let us know what you think about these topics. Um, if you want to give some feedback about our show, please do so. And if you've missed any of our previous shows or you want to listen back to today's show, you can also visit our a website which is voiceofislam.co.uk that is voiceofislam.co.uk looking at um, looking after our health is obviously an important concept Sp- specifically in Islam as Allah the Almighty mentions in the Holy Quran O children of Adam look to your adornment at every time and place of worship and eat and drink, but exceed not the bounds. Surely he does not love those who exceed the bounds. Extensive research has led to significant advancements in the diagnosis and treatment of cancer. It is now widely understood that not every cancer diagnosis carries a fatal prognosis. And the increasing awareness of early signs and symptoms has immensely facilitated in early screening and diagnosis. Now, this early detection, in turn, has greatly improved the effectiveness of treatment options. So, as uh, we develop 
as human beings develop, as we develop in our knowledge, we are getting closer to potentially, hopefully one day, having um, a, a, a cure, a, a helpline or a hope for, for, for those that are going through uh, these difficulties. Now, while there has been a reduction in mortality rates due to cancer, the risk is still there. According to a recent study, the risk from dying of cancer varies hugely between different regions in the UK. Data collected over two decades showed that in the poorest areas, the risk of dying from cancer was a staggering 70% more than compared to wealthy areas. So 70%, that's seven zero, by the way. I mean, that says a lot about what is happening around us, what we as human beings should be doing, what we are in actuality doing. And that again reminds us of the Islamic teaching of being just and being fair and providing all of those in need, not just serving your own interests, not, not, not just taking care of, you, of your own health, your family or your, your neighborhood. But really making sure that circumstances are such that everyone is looked after. I mean, let me just say this again, just to, to, to re-emphasize my point, that the risk of dying from cancer is a staggering 70%, 70% more compared to wealthy areas. Let that sink in. Now... The cancer risk factors are obviously very various and uh, there are many aspects that one needs to look at in order to understand this. Experts analysed data from the Office for National Statistics on deaths from 10 cancers that caused the most deaths in 314 different areas of England that took place between 2002 and 2009. So that's nearly two decades. The team found that the risk of cancer deaths was highest in northern cities, including Liverpool, Manchester, Howe and Newcastle, as well as in coastal areas to the east of London. For women, the risk of dying from cancer before they turned 80 ranged from 1 in 10 in Westminster to one in six in Manchester. The data showed that for men in Harrow, the risk was one in eight men compared to one in five in Manchester. So around four in 10 UK cancer cases every year could be prevented. Astoundingly, that's more than 135,000 every year. Now, cancer risk factors in poverty-stricken areas in the UK are usually influenced by an interplay of uh, socio-economic uh, determinants, limited access to healthcare services, a, a, um, a very rare um, preventive measures, um, challenges in adopting healthy lifestyles, practices contribute to heightened cancer risks in these communities.
Now, people from more um, deprived areas are not only more likely to get cancer, but they are also more likely to be diagnosed at a late stage for certain cancer types and have trouble assessing, sorry, um, accessing cancer services. An analysis by Cancer Research UK estimates there are 33,000 extra cases of cancer in the UK each year associated with deprivation, which could be avoided if health inequalities were tackled. An important factor, obviously, um, is the lifestyle that um, we are living in, in this day and age. But if you look at uh, the time of the Holy Prophet of Islam, Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He said there are two gifts which many men are unmindful about. Good health and leisure. Now, if we look around ourselves and if, if we look at our lifestyles today, we, we, we do realize that Yes, there are these um, um, diseases around and uh, issues and um, such illnesses. But how much are we doing to help ourselves, really? How much are we doing to live a healthy lifestyle? Are we really um, factoring in all of these aspects? Are we giving our best? Or is it maybe a 50-50 where we go towards the illness and at the same time the illness is rushing towards us. According to Cancer Research UK, obesity in the is the UK's biggest cause of cancer after smoking, causing more than 1 in 20 cancer cases in the UK. More than 6 in 10 UK adults, so those aged above 16, are overweight or obese. The body uh, mass index uh, is at 25 or more for, for, for such people, which is around 34.4 million people. Lung cancer is the leading cause uh, of the cases linked to deprivation, largely because smoking is much more common in more deprived areas. There are nearly twice as many cancer cases caused by smoking in the poorest areas than in the wealthiest in England. Excessive alcohol consumption also increases the risk of developing cancer. British Liver Trust has recently called for urgent action to reduce the um, effects of cheap alcohol and unhealthy, and unhealthy food after a 40% increase in deaths from liver cancer in a decade. I think a question we should ask ourselves here, though. Um, why are they asking to reduce um, the effects of cheap alcohol and unhealthy food? Why are they not getting rid of alcohol? I mean, what good has alcohol brought to this world? Um, I, I, I really struggle to find examples except for the use of, of this in, in medicine which is obviously permitted within Islam as well. There is a reason why Islam is strictly against the consumption of alcohol, because it brings no good. 
So the only good of this is when it's used for medical reasons or maybe in, in, in some other ways that can benefit humankind. But to consume alcohol for leisure has never brought any good news to people. It's only um, had an impact on, 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 on people's lives, on their personality, on their families. And uh, when you look on the more drastic side, it has cost people their lives or they ended up taking someone else's life and, and uh, hence ruining a, a, a whole family and, and leaving them with a trauma that, that will last till the end of the day. So when get just completely rid of it, and this is again where we need to lay emphasis on the Islamic teaching in this regard, because Islam um, is always going to uh, stand for a healthy human being, that is um, improving himself or herself in spirituality rather than going down such ways of leisure and uh, really just wasting their money and getting no good of it. The Holy Quran in this regard states, they ask thee concerning liquor and gambling. Tell them there is harm in both and also some benefit for the people but their harm is greater than their benefit. This is chapter 2, verse 220. So, and to, to, to those that are really um, going through such difficulties and those that sometimes feel like there is no way out, those that are struggling with, with these things. I mean, it is not just the, 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 the consumption of alcohol, but really... Sometimes we, we don't see um, excessive eating or, or eating too much junk as a problem, but it is a, it, it is a problem. Uh, we sometimes take as a joke um, my my friend or, 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 or relative of mine, he or she consumes too much uh, junk and, and we just keep it at that. But in reality, these things are major problems that society is facing. And we may not be experiencing the effects of it today, but rest assured, maybe three years, five years or ten years down the line, the physical as well as mental impact of, of these things will come back to bite us. So why not be prepared for this? And one thing Muslims are taught to do in this regard is pray to Allah the Almighty because nothing in Islam goes without prayer. Nothing goes without the blessing, without the guidance of Allah the Almighty. So when we Muslims attempt to do something, when we have the intention to make a change in life or, 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 or become steadfast in something, one thing is always going to be there. It is the first and foremost thing that we do, and that is pray towards Allah the Almighty. Now, a concept that uh, has been created by some um, Muslims, even some Muslim scholars, is that Allah the Almighty doesn't actually listen to our prayers. So, then we ask ourselves, what's, what's the need or what is even the purpose of asking for prayers? Well, this is uh, what was explained to us through the promised Messiah, 
Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian, uh, who was the founder of the Ahmadiyya community, he explained to us that, well, in actuality, God does listen to our prayers and he always listens and he answers as well. Him answering the prayers may at times go the way we wanted that prayer uh, or, or, or the outcome of, of a certain situation. At times, it might be different than what it was expected. But he knows best what he's doing. And one f- fact is established that he does listen and, 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 and he does reply to our prayers. So what's remaining for us to do is really uh, find that time and bow down towards him and ask him, Let's have a quick listen about uh, God Almighty listening to our prayers and we will be back right after. Writings of the Promised Messiah, salam. When you stand up in prayer, you should know it for certain that your God has the power to do all that He wills. Then your prayer will be accepted and you will behold the wonders of God's power that we have beheld. Our testimony is based on seeing and is not a mere tale. How should the supplication of a person be accepted? And how should he have the courage to pray at the time of great difficulties when according to him, he is opposed by the law of nature? Unless he believes that God has power over everything. You should not be like that. Your God is one who has suspended numberless stars without any support and who has created heaven and earth from nothing. And would you think so ill of him as to imagine that your objective is beyond his power? Such thinking will frustrate you. Our God possesses numberless wonders, but only those observe them who become wholly his with certainty and fidelity. He does not disclose his powers to those who do not believe in his powers and are not faithful to him. So this is in essence what we believe in and this is what exactly is needed is that someone that believes in the powers of God Almighty and that belief, uh, believes that change only comes about through his doing, through his guidance and his blessing. And this power of prayer can really be utilized in, in all aspects of life starting from from our daily routine to the, 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 the most severe of situations, such as going through cancer. Allah the Almighty has the ability to, to help us out of a situation or calm us down and, and, and give us some hope, really. Um, coming back to what we were discussing earlier was in regards to poverty-stricken areas. Um, when we look at early screenings, we understand that individuals in poverty-stricken areas, especially ethnic minorities, often face barriers in accessing routine screenings and pre- uh, preventive healthcare due to maybe financial constraints or geographical disparities. We will uh, 
discuss this topic further with our first guest caller who's been kind enough to join us today. Uh, it is Mats Lambert. He's the Health uh, Information and Promotion Manager at World Cancer Research Fund International. Matt, thank you very much for joining with us. Welcome to the Drive Time Show and peace be upon you. No, thank you very much and thank you for having me on to talk about this important topic. Oh, sure, surely it, it is a very important topic and um, all, all we can do is really raise awareness and Absolutely. maybe help bring about some change. Um, Matt, how are you working towards a world where no one dies of a preventable uh, cancer? Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess we do this in a variety of ways. So firstly, we run our annual Cancer Prevention Awareness Week, where we bring a focus to one of our cancer prevention recommendations. And I can come on and talk about our recommendations later on. We also influence policy on a global scale, and that's to really help make our environments healthier. We also try and share our information out to as many different people as possible. So we do this through our, um, our reach on social media. We partner with other health organisations. Because what we really want to try and do, we want to try and reach the people who don't have access to the information. Because these are the people who really need the information to help make sustainable, healthy living um, changes. So we produce a lot of online information and a lot of printed information as well. So we produce a lot, variety of different health guides covering a lot of different topics. We produce lots of cookbooks and everything we do is free. So what we're really trying to do is we're really trying to use social media and our reach with other health organisations to really maximise our reach and get our information out to as many different people as possible. And I guess really the key message we're trying to get out to people is that it's not inevitable that we will get cancer. About 40% of cancers are preventable, and that's through making healthy, sustainable lifestyle, uh, lifestyle changes. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really important message to people, people to know that even just making a few small changes can go some way reducing the cancer risk. Because I think a lot of people historically thought that, oh, cancer is something that um, you know, if my mother or father had cancer, it means I'm definitely going to get cancer. And actually, genetics play a really small part. Actually, only about 3 to 5% of cancers are caused by specific inherited genes. It's, it's very much how we live our lives that has a, the biggest impact. So we really wanted to, you know, we really try and make it well known that we can do lots within our control with how we live our lives to reduce our risk as much as possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. We were uh, talking about this earlier in, in regards to body weight yeah. and how obesity is really a, a, a leading cause for cancer. Yeah. Um, what is uh, the World Cancer Research Fund's recommendation around body weight and, and cancer risk? So, yeah, so actually overweight obesity is actually the, sig- sink, the second biggest cause of cancer in the UK, actually only second to smoking. And actually it's been estimated that actually up to about 8% of all cancers mm-hmm. um, are linked to obesity. Mm-hmm. And actually over our research, that's been going on over the last 30 years. And one of the consistent findings is how that too much weight, especially too much body fat, increases our cancer risk and in fact recent estimates estimate that around 13 different types of cancer are linked to excess body weight so they include some of the most common cancers such as breast bowel and prostate and it also covers some of the actually hardest to treat cancers such as gallbladder uh, and pancreatic cancer um, as well so actually one of our cancer prevention recommendations and our cancer prevention recommendations are essentially a blueprint based on the strongest global scientific evidence about how to reduce your risk of, risk of cancer as much as possible and one of our recommendations on weight is actually to be a healthy weight mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So whilst being overweight doesn't necessarily mean that someone will develop cancer, but the more weight someone has and the longer they're at their higher body weight for, it basically means they're going to be an increased risk of cancer. So what someone can do, if they are carrying a few extra pounds, is dropping the weight by a little bit. Again, it doesn't have to be you know going from, um, let's say, 20 stone down to 10 stone it could just be a few percent body weight change and that actually can have quite a big impact on someone's health both now and in the long term as well and i think one of the things that people don't realize is that excess body fat doesn't just sit there it actually causes inflammation and releases excess hormones and what these excess information the excess hormones can do is they can actually get our cells to divide more often and that over time can actually lead to the formation of cancerous um, cancerous cells so over the years you know when i've worked one-to-one with individuals you know a lot of people have said to me oh matt what's the best way to to, to lose weight is there a best diet for weight loss and you know unfortunately i have to disappoint people and say there isn't one way mm-hmm. it's ultimately the best diet that people can um can stick to and that fits in with someone's everyday life and ultimately it should be as easy as possible and it shouldn't really be like a diet it should just be something that someone just does as part of an everyday everyday mm. lifestyle and and i guess the key thing if people were to focus more on eating more plant-based foods like fiber rich and the whole whole grain rich food eating a variety of different colored fruits and vegetables pulses like chickpeas lentils beans a variety of nuts and seeds you're getting you're giving the body the nutrients it needs naturally plant-based foods are lowering calories mm-hmm. so ultimately when people have got that way of eating they're naturally going to drop weight because they're overall they're naturally consuming less calories so it almost feels like they're actually not on a diet and i think that is the best way for people to lose weight in a sustainable way it's changing way people eat and not thinking that they're on a diet Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, obviously that's um, the sort of best way to go. And uh, but the, on the flip, flip side, we we do talk about uh, the consumption of processed foods. Yeah. Um, how they obviously contribute to the risk of developing cancer. Which um, additives or uh, preservatives have been associated in particular in this regard? So I think firstly I'll just touch on a little bit about processed food because. Obviously, there's different levels of processing, and I'm sure some of your listeners may have heard what is called ultra-processed food. So it's mm-hmm. food that's been overly processed. And you know, ultimately, a lot of the food that we eat day in, day out has been processed to some degree. So whether it's you know, freezing something is a process. All our milk is processed. So it's the degree of processing. So it's very much like what we call the ultra-processed food we want to try and cut down on. So these types of food are generally high in fat, specifically saturated fat, which is a type of fat that's not good for our health. health. They tend to be high in sugar and salt. And the worst thing is they tend to be low in the nutrients our body needs, like a variety of different vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients, and fiber, etc. So the issue really with ultra-processed food is they're strongly linked to weight gain because even small portions can contain a lot of calories. Now, when it comes to cancer, so whilst there have been some studies that have shown that those consuming the most amount of ultra-processed food have a greater risk of developing certain cancers, the evidence currently is far from conclusive. However, what we do know is that if we have excess weight, as we mentioned before, this increases cancer risk. So potentially ultra-processed foods could be increasing cancer risk by merely um, by just increasing our, our body weight gradually over time. And now when it comes to certain additives, 
We don't actually know whether in ultra-processed food where it's certain additives that are increasing cancer risk. Mm -hmm. We also don't know whether it's the actual composition of the food. So is it the amount of fat, salt and sugar it contains? My hypothesis is probably linked to the amount of calories they contain per, per portion, but we don't have definitive science to, to show that yet. So ultra-processed food is probably one of the hot, hottest topics in nutrition science at yeah. the moment, and everyone is really interested in ultra-processed food and about reducing consumption. And, of course, from a general health point of view, reducing how many processed foods we have is generally always a good thing. And just, just a quick caveat, and actually, on ultra-processed foods, there's lots of actually foods that would be considered ultra-processed that we would deem as healthier. So like wholemeal bread, a lot of like whole grain breakfast cereals, like low sugar and low salt muesli, mm -hmm. sometimes would be classed as ultra-processed. And actually ultra-processed food actually gives people the option to consume food on a low budget because not everyone has access to affordable, healthy options. And I think just the, by virtue of a food being labelled as an ultra-processed food, people shouldn't feel bad about having that type of food because ultimately food is a lot more than the nutrients it provides. Food provides pleasure and enjoyment and as, as a way of celebrating um, as, as, as a family and celebrating certain celebrations um, as well. However, I will quickly just mention about one area of processing that we do know is definitively linked to cancer and that is processed, and that is processed meat. Mm -hmm. So processed meat, so that could be things like salami, bacon, sausages, etc. So they can turn, they contain certain chemicals called nitrates, and they can transform into compounds that can damage the cells, specifically the cells of our large bowel, so our colon. So which is why processed meat in any quantities increases our risk of bowel cancer. So the more processed meat we consume, the greater our risk of developing um, bowel cancer. So one of our one of our other cancer prevention recommendations is for people to eat little or no processed meat. So, so that's really we can say definitively, processed meat is is actually causally linked to cancer. Whereas all the other other ultra ultra processed foods, so crisps, chocolate, as I said, we don't definitively know whether that's linked to cancer directly. Indirectly, we know these foods are really high in calories. And we know that, high, that regularly consuming high-calorie foods over a period of time can lead to weight gain, and that indirectly can, inc and can increase uh, cancer risk. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, that really clarifies, I think, many things and maybe some misconceptions that we uh, are having in regards to processed yeah. food as well. No, definitely. And I, and, I, and, I, and I think the media confuses it as well because... I think there's so much noise in the media about ultra-processed food as well, and it's almost become really vilified. And mm, mm. it almost feels like people should feel like shame because they're not giving the body what it needs. But some people don't have any option because of limited budget, yeah. limited limited availability of, of, of healthy, um, affordable food. So, um, of course, you know, if people were to cut down how much ultra-processed food they have, that's always going to be... Um, a good thing. As I said, it's all about making sustainable changes. So it's not about suddenly going from changing your diet that might be 80-90% ultra-processed food to to almost completely minimally processed because for a lot of people that's not really that's not really really practical. Mm. But if for example if someone is having let's say 80% of the diet 
that's made up of ultra-processed food, and that's only reduced over a period of months down to 60%, that's going to be better because ultimately they're going to be consuming less fat, less salt, and less sugar. So not just from a cancerous point of view, they'll be improving their general health in terms of helping to reduce risk of other diseases like, like heart disease, type 2 diabetes, um, and, 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 the, and other diseases such as you know dementia and Alzheimer's, which has been linked to uh, a lifestyle um, and what we eat as well. Uh-huh. Interesting. Um, Matt, um, in regards to the uh, upcoming Cancer Prevention Action Week, yeah, uh, where my I, I believe the, the the theme is physical activity. That's um, right. Yeah, tell us more about that. Yeah, sure. So I think when it comes to cancer, a lot of people tend to think about, oh, it's what I eat and drink. A lot of people don't really get much focus to physical activity. Mm-hmm. So this year's Cancer Prevention Action Week, which takes place from the 19th to 25th of February, very much puts physical activity um, in the limelight. So there's two things we're really doing as part of the Awareness Week. So firstly, we're raising awareness of how physical activity can protect against certain cancers. So for example, colon cancer, um, wound cancer, and also breast cancer um, as well. We're also asking people to use their downtime. So that could be like waiting for the bus, waiting for the boil to kettle, uh, so waiting, waiting for the kettle to boil, um, to get a bit more active. So for example, we might be doing like some squats, some lunges and press-ups while they're waiting for the kettle to boil. So it's about taking advantage of these, these moments in my day um, to do small bursts of activity. Like I said, it could be like doing some squats. I mentioned about the, the kettle example, but it could be like doing, you know, brushing your teeth and doing some squats, or it could be stretching if watching TV during the adverts. It's just about taking these opportunities to get a bit more activity in. And I think a lot of people can be put off thinking you need to spend a lot of time to get active for it to make a difference to someone's health. So, you know, a lot of people still have this idea that, oh, if I don't go to gym or don't go out through, uh, you know, a half hour run every week or every day rather, um, then they're not maximizing their health. And of course, if you enjoy that, that's great, but you don't necessarily have to do that if it doesn't fit in with the lifestyle or if it's not something that, um, that you enjoy. So actually doing a short amount of activity, specific activity that gets us slightly breathless for any length of time, whether it be from a few seconds to a few minutes, provides benefits. And it's this whole notion of what is called like exercise snacking, which is a fairly new term, and it's all about trying to fit activity in as part of our daily living. So it's not mm-hmm. necessarily having to carve out specific time to get more active it's about finding ways to get active that are part of our daily living so people can actually still get healthier doing that and still reduce their risk of cancer without say saying for example going to the gym for an hour or going for a run for an hour um, etc so it basically makes physical activity more accessible to more people um, which is the most which is the most important thing so you know for example if someone's just going about their daily their daily life whether they're cleaning or just walking around, if you just did that with a little bit more vigor, just with a little bit more intensity, that's really where we start to see these um, these health benefits from um, from exercise snacking. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And uh, I think if, if you look back in time, um, people maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago, um, that's how they stayed fit. Um, they didn't specifically find time for themselves to go to the yep. gym. And yep. They just stayed fit because they were fit, yep. active throughout the day, isn't it? Yeah, no, definitely. You know, if you look back to like 
our hunter-gatherer days, you know, a lot of our time was spent foraging for food, mm. obviously trying to not, not get not get killed by bearers' prey. Um, but our lifestyle was conducive in a way that we were just active because we had to actually physically get our food, cook the food, and all that food preparation actually took quite a lot of energy. Yes. And nowadays, you know, we can get a lot of calories with literally burning no calories. You know, I can get off this call now, I can go on to Just Eat, and I can order, you know, a 2,000-calorie pizza. Mm. Um, you know, that would probably take me about four hours to, to burn off, um, and it takes me literally zero energy to, yeah. to, to, to get it. So I think our environments are set up for us to be more, to, to, to be less active. And, you know, I think it's all about trying to break up those pros where we're sitting with just some light movement because that actually can make actually quite a big difference to someone's health. Absolutely. Uh, Matt, we are running out of time, but one thing I would uh, like to ask you before um, we, we, we end this interview with you today. Um, can you tell us about your work uh, on promoting cancer prevention and how can our listeners uh, find you online or maybe even help? Sure. So I get from a promoting cancer prevention, so just very quickly, I guess one of the ways we do this is we work a lot with frontline health professionals. So we attend regular events where we talk to health professionals about the work we're doing. So really bringing cancer prevention to the forefront. So, you know, if they're in a, you know, if they're in a clinic with a patient or who might be a higher risk of cancer for genetic or for lifestyle factors, we want them to be more confident about talking to them about cancer. So we spend a lot of time upskilling health professionals through um, workshops, um, online courses, so they feel more confident when they talk to a patient about cancer. And we provide all our resources for free, so if they want to talk to a patient about weight, they've got various, we've got various guides that they can give them to help support what they've learned during, um, during that session. Mm. Um, and, and I guess really for people, they want to be able to support us is um, follow us on social media. If we're posting something, please share it um obviously on our social media channels um we'll be producing you know, we'll be putting a lot of stuff out about cancer prevention action week um over, um when we, when we get to uh when we actually get to the week in february so please um feel free for your listeners to like share follow retweet um or if you listen to what to get access to any of our free information whether it be one of our lovely cookbooks or one of our health guides Mm. Everything is everything is totally free, um, and also people who are living with cancer. We've got a free helpline. We've got various resources for people who are living with cancer. So please visit our website. Um, just type in World Cancer Research Fund, uh, and that you'll basically come through, and you'll should be should be the the, the first um, uh, the first link, um, whatever whatever search engine that you that you're using, uh, and then just click through. And each each of the sections, uh, we've got a healthy living advice section a healthy recipe section. So we've got a whole plethora of different information um, in there. So even if obviously um, cancer prevention is not your focus, then following our information is going to help to not only just make you healthier, but it's also going to reduce your risk of other diseases um, as well. So that's how I would say is to get involved. And we have various like three e-users people can join, um, uh, sign up to as well so they can get to hear all about the latest news and research that we're funding um, as well. Perfect, perfect. Um, Matt, thank you very much for, for being with us. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And we, have to, uh, we hope to have you uh, on sometime soon again. That would be great. Thanks very thank much. You, for you time. take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.
So uh, this uh, was Matt Lambert that we were speaking with, who is the Health Information and Promotion Manager at World Cancer Research Fund International. And uh, yeah, we, we got some great insights actually uh, into um, what cancer is about, how it can be prevented, and some of the misconceptions that uh, he helped us remove today. And uh, we will swiftly move on to our next guest caller for today, which is uh, Abed Hussein, who is a regional service manager at Smoke Free Hampshire. Abed, uh, peace be upon you. Thank you very much for uh, joining us, and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much. Um, tell us about um, Smoke Free Hampshire. How, how do you work on, on helping people quit smoking? Well, Smoke Free Hampshire is a, a fully funded by Hampshire County Council. And the, the, the service provides across all 11 districts of the county. Um, we have a number of different ways and options for residents to uh, this, including face-to-face city centers, surgeries, workplaces, and also telephone support, those people that can't make it to face-to-face sessions, we can actually do the treatment at the change of the phone, as well as uh, virtual support through app, which is called uh, Quit With Bella, which is a super for health app. So as, as a company, we, we try to reach out to all areas on, on a parallel level as much as we possibly can. Um, and, and furthermore, really, the, one of the unique ways that we're reaching out to the local residents is through mobile units. Mm-hmm. So we have clinics. They're like, no um, doctors on the wheels. So we've got the smoking practitioners on the wheels. So we cover all the way from Old Shore down to Fairham itself, all um, in the county where people can't get to the places where we'll go out to the community centers, shopping centers, where, where the and it is it's totally of charge and no point only cost of members of, of the um uh of Amsterdam. Uh-huh. Um I mean in, in, in your experience, are, are people who smoke um, generally aware of the health risks associated with cigarettes and tobacco use? Uh, I I say they are, but the, but a lot of people take it lightly. Mm-hmm. Uh first shows that yes when you speak to people about where you're saying oh you smoke do you want some help they say oh yeah yeah i know the patches and so on and so forth but they think lightly in a sense because the dangers are not there and that not apparent with that minute or the moment so it takes number of you know months and years and, and a lifetime's behavior to get to a stage where it becomes such a nasty illness or, or a disease as your previous caller was alluding to for example cancer yeah then makes it so much harder for health professionals in, in the secondary care and, and uh, the specialist care to then treat it. And that inevitably increases the burden on the NHS and the resources that uh, local authorities and public health directories are, are having to ring fans to treat this issue. So they are, the, the short answer really is that yes, people are aware, but need to take it a bit more seriously, that there is a reason that the government and the local authorities and the public health NHS, all of these people are funding so much amount of money look after the well-being of local residents, so they need to be Right. So, um, what what role do public health awareness programs play in 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 these um, in this aspect? How effective are these initiatives in reducing tobacco use? Um, I think 
look at the history of, of smoking as such. I mean, the, the no smoking campaigns, health education, um, public health messages across, you know, the, 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 the electronic media, TV and various other campaigns, um, all the from schools and colleges to health intervention. We're always focused on the fact that, you know, these are external factors that make your health much adverse to what it is, much more dangerous and, and difficult to control. The risks are, are countless. So the, the, the behavior change method perhaps is, is, is the, the most uh, interesting one where we work with general members of the public to reinforce the, 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 the issue, the fact that the smoking, there is nothing good about it. It costs you money, it, it damages your health, it damages the environment, and it compromises the whole family concept of well-being and, and living quality life. Um, so what we're trying to do, in, in a sense, the, um, some of the, the, the things, for example, um, the no smoking day has been since 1984, and it, it gets every year, usually around you know March time, we will have a no smoking day campaign. Then in October, we'll have Stoptober campaign, which is to get people to quit at least for four weeks. So the evidence suggests that if we could get them to quit for four weeks, the chances are that they will stay smoke-free for longer, or they'll be more favored to, to give up smoking for longer by getting support from the specialist services. It is difficult. We, we, we never not accepted or acknowledge the fact that the smoking is a lifetime habit. takes a number of efforts. The evidence suggests that something around six, eight times, independently, if people are trying to quit, hmm. they may for succeeding. However, if you get special support like we are providing in the with local authority support and the, the, the primary and the secondary care uh, support from the hospitals and community services, then that is improved by 50%. So effectively, you only need to perhaps you engage maybe two or three times before you're able to give up smoking. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I bet we were earlier discussing uh, socio-economic groups who, who, who may have higher smoking rates. Yeah. Um, what sort of strategies or approaches uh, have been successful uh, in addressing such challenges? I, I think when you look at the economic groups, of course, the fundamental thing um, is the level of education, awareness, and people's ability to then address a particular health concern. Where, of course, if they need to take a time off, for example, day off from a factory or a warehouse where they work to attend a medical appointment, they may not be so favored in that one because they will lose money. They will lose the income from that particular time that they're taking off. So they tend to avoid it for another day, for another week, for another month before it gets so difficult. What we're trying to do, for example, in Beijing Circuit in area, as an example of this, is that we're actually knocking every factory and warehouse garages doors to offer our services by offering the mobile cleaning to attend that site. So people actually don't have to take the time from work. They don't have to go away at all. All we're asking is the employers, the owners of those businesses, to, from the social responsibility perspective, to give five or ten minutes of their time to allow their staff to come and speak to us and we can get that um, process on the way to support and reduce the prevalence in the, the, the lower social economic groups that you're referring to. It is difficult. I would never say that it's not. But mm. the change, educational, and bit of motivational interviewing to actually show the seeds that there is smoking for the whole family, whole community, and the whole city, and overall, it feeds into our 27th for making the United Kingdom smoke-free. Um, 
the, the I mean, the percentage of, of, from 1962, from around 70% of male smoking, uh, it's come down to around 12.8% in, in the Hampshire County. That's the, the higher end of the number. Mm-hmm. So the evidence is that it does work, regardless of the profile of the community. Sometimes it's more challenging for us and the people that we're working with. But we just need to push with Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, as, as, as time is, is really getting the better of us in really the, the last two minutes or so, um, what advice would you give to anyone who wants to quit smoking but they have not started their journey yet? I think it's the simplest thing that they can drop us a text in, in uh, block capitals on double six triple seven. Just a text to say they want to quit, really, or, or search for Smoke Free Hampshire. We are all over the county. We are accessible through any means, every means, in person, virtual, phones, text messaging, any which way. And, and really, the, the, the main thing I want to tell uh, to advise people and share with people is that it's a fully funded service by the local authority. The local authority has your best interest in their heart, and this is why the service is committed. We are the sources to actually get the service through to your doorstep. We will be wherever you want us to be. Just reach out to us. That is all you have to do contact us by any means that you can and we will make sure that we do the best that we possibly can to support you through it. Perfect, perfect. Abid, Jazakallah, uh, thank you very much for, for, for being with us and I wish you a, a lovely day ahead. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Lord, I hope it's been useful and I look forward to uh, the, the and the listeners reaching out to us to benefit the whole community together. Jazakallah, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Um, so this was uh, Abid Hussein, who is the regional service manager at Smoke Free Hampshire, um, giving us some great insight in to um, in, in really how we can um, stop smoking, the the challenges that people face, and one thing we need to understand is that if we do want to bring a change within ourselves. We are not alone in this. There are other people and and the the struggle is real. So there is no harm in, in reaching out for help. And this is why um, initiatives such as Smoke Free Hampshire are around. Um, as Abid said, they, they can be reached via a very simple text message and they'll, they'll take it from there and, and try and, and guide you towards a better and healthier future. Um, the Holy Prophet uh, Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, stated, None of you will have failed uh, faith until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself. So in an age when modern science has come so far, um, there should be no reason why people should have to battle a, a disease simply because of their geographical location, ethnicity or socio-economic status, especially in, 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 in Western countries, in very well-established and financially stable con- uh, countries such as uh, the UK and, and other countries across Europe and Northern America. Um, embracing inclusi- uh, inclusivity in healthcare practices is, is, is not just a moral imperative, but a strategic approach towards building a healthier, more resilient society and through uh, collaborative efforts, education and policy reforms, we can work towards a future where every individual, regardless of their location and socio-economic status, has access to the highest standards of cancer care, promoting overall health equity. 
So that brings us um, to uh, the end of uh, the first hour today. And I think that the message has been very clear. Um, it becomes very tough when one is affected by, by such difficulties. But there are preventive measures that we can take, that we should take. And uh, we should always um, try to pray in the first place that may Allah not only guide us towards better health, but really everyone uh, across the globe and within our society so that the future generations can benefit from that. We'll be back with you um, after the news break. Al-Bari is a word that emulates the whole of the creation of the universe. Allah calls Himself Al-Bari, the originator, the maker, the evolver, on three occasions in the Holy Qur'an. He is the one who creates from out of nothing. He is not merely the first cause, He is the creator the maker, the fashioner. And it is he who exercises control over the universe at all times. Al-Bari creates with no model or similarity and evolves that which is in perfect proportion and harmony without any fault. God is the supreme being who exists independently of everything else. He is the sole creator of the universe, the maker of the heavens and the earth. No event occurs in the universe without God's knowledge and explicit consent. He is the ultimate source of every action and happening, animate or inanimate. God has not only created the galaxies and stars, but also the life forms of this earth. He is the nourisher and sustainer of all creation. He is their Lord. The holy attribute of Allah, Al-Bari, captures the creation of the whole of the universe. The quality of creating the universe out of nothingness and then perpetuating it into existence. This wonderful attribute aligns perfectly with the current scientific view about the creation of the universe from the Big Bang and its continuous expansion. Hazrat Khalifatul Masih IV, may Allah be pleased with him, shed light on this concept in his book, Revelation, Rationality, Knowledge and Truth, detailing how the Holy Quran is the only divine scripture to speak about the continuous expansion of the universe. He states, It should be remembered that the concept of the continuous expansion of the universe is exclusive to the Qur'an. No other divine scriptures even remotely hint at it. The discovery that the universe is constantly expanding 
is of prime significance to scientists because it helps create a better understanding of how the universe was initially created. It clearly explains the stage-by-stage -stage process of creation in a manner which perfectly falls into step with the theory of the Big Bang. The Quran goes further and describes the entire cycle of the beginning, the end, and the return again to a similar beginning. Highlighting the unique qualities of Allah, it is all the more important to ponder over this attribute while remembering Allah in order to attain His nearness and favor. This divine attribute, Al-Bari, depicts a wonderful view of the creation of the universe that continues to astound the modern man. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Where we are with you with another live drive time show. In the previous hour, we discussed um, cancer risk and the regional inequalities. Um, that we are facing as a nation and we spoke with some great guest callers uh, that provided um, insight into this very um, important topic if you missed the previous hour you can always listen back on our website voiceofislam.co.uk that is voiceofislam.co.uk we are now going to be um, talking about generational gap the difference of opinions on the Israel and Palestine issue. If you would like to get involved in our discussion, you can always call us on 0208-687-7878. That is 0208-687-7878. Or um, let us know what you think on our socials. You can always find us on our socials at Voice of Islam UK. That is at Voice of Islam UK. The generational gap um, often results in varying opinions on every issue. Similar situation is uh, the Palestine and Israel conflict, reflecting evolving pers uh, per perspectives shaped by historical context, 
personal experiences and changing narratives. The Islamic viewpoint is no matter what gender or generation, peace and justice should be prioritized. The Holy Quran says that surely all believers are brothers, so make peace between them. Uh, so make peace between brothers and fear Allah that mercy may be shown to you. According to um, Bookings News, there was a clear generational gap. Israel saw a net positive sympathy level of plus 46% among baby boomers, um, those born between 1946 and 1964, and uh, plus 32% among Generation X, those born between 1965 and 1979. However, there was a massive drop-off among millennials, so those that were born between 1980 and 2000, where net sympathy for Israel versus Palestinians was minus 2%. So older generations may have lived through key events in the conflict, such as um, the Six-Day War or the um, Oslo Accords, which can deeply influence uh, their viewpoints. Younger generations may rely more on historical records or obviously the, the current media coverage. Younger generations have uh, grown up um, with access to a wider range of information sources, including social media and alternative news outlets, which can shape the understanding of the conflict differently from older generations who relied on traditional media. So the fundamental idea, however, is justice. Justice for Gaza's innocent civilians and Israel's innocent civilians. To this, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community says, where the Israeli army has carried out injustices, that is on them, and there are better and lawful ways to address that. If there is a legitimate state of war, it should be entirely limited to the respective armies and never against innocent women, children, elderly and civilians. In this respect, the action Hamas took must be condemned. So what the Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has said is obviously very much in line with the teachings of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Because the Ahmadiyya community does follow the Prophet wasallam, peace be upon him, and the teaching of the Holy Quran to the word. Now, Social media um, is obviously an, an immense ap- uh, aspect when we look at the current situation and, 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 and the current world order. One of the main reasons for this generational gap is this very social media. Even today, it appears that the media continues to exhibit a significant bias against Palestinians. Many media outlets seem to uh, perpetuate and reinforce a narrative that portrays all actions taken by Israel as acts of self-defense. However, it raises a fundamental question. How can these actions truly be seen as self-defense when Israel maintains a well-equipped army and exercises control over occupied territories? Israel possesses one of the world's most 
formidable military forces. And in the face of this power disparity, it becomes increasingly difficult just to justify the loss of innocent civilian lives as an act of self-defense. Now, um, even if in the, in, in, in the presence of, of this evident media bias, there is a growing and substantial show of support for Palestinians, particularly among the younger generations. This surge in support can be attributed in large part to increased access to information and global awareness facilitated by social media platforms. Um, one such app has played a significant role in raising awareness about the Palestinians, uh, the Palestinian cause, um, that is TikTok. And uh, I mean, we have previously spoken about TikTok having its its effects um, and rather negative effects that, that we focused on previously. But um, as it is taught by the Holy Quran and Islam, everything can be used in a positive as well as in a negative way. So that really remains to the intentions of the user. Here, for example, uh, TikTok is being used to, to provide information. But then again, the intention of the user still remains in question whether they are providing um, legitimate, right, honest news or is it maybe following some sort of agenda. Now, TikTok has been criticized uh, by some for supposedly promoting a pro-Palestine agenda. However, it's essential to note that this phenomenon extends beyond TikTok. According to the Washington Post, similar trends can be observed on American-owned platforms such as Facebook and Twitter, or now known as X. The power of social media is amplifying voices and spreading information um, has made a it a critical tool for shedding light on the Israel-Palestine conflict, transcending geographical boundaries, and engaging a global audience in discussion about justice and human rights. Now, the young people around the world are more connected than ever, allowing them to access diverse perspectives and information sources that challenge traditional narratives and foster a deep understanding of the Israel-Palestine conflict. To this end, there have been numerous protests and demonstrations around the world in support of Palestine. According to BBC News, tens of thousands of, 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 of protesters joined rallies and sit-ins uh, in dozens of towns and cities across the UK to call for an end to Israeli attacks in Gaza. And the Metropolitan Police estimate there were 30,000 in central London alone. Nonetheless, it is important to be mindful of the information that we see on various mainstream media and social media platforms. Images are being shared all over the internet to uh, illustrate the severity of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Now regarding this, the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community has said, and I quote, now all the major powers or Western powers have put justice aside and are uniting to inflict cruelty upon Palestinians and there is talk of armies being sent from all directions. Images of the oppressed are shown to depict the injustices being uh, perpetrated and false reports 
are shown in the media. One day there will be news about the condition of Israeli women and children and their dire circumstances. And the next day, it turns out that they were not Israelis, but in fact Palestinians. Yet the media does not take any accountability for this, and there is sympathy expressed for them. This is the reason why Islam offers a profound teaching to dispel falsehood altogether. God Almighty states in the Holy Quran, O ye who believe, if an unrighteous person brings you any news, ascertain the correctness of the report fully, lest you harm a people in ignorance, and then become repentant for what you have done. So the message from an Islamic point of view remains um, very clear, and that is that justice must prevail, peace uh, must be created within society, and cruelties should be condemned, whether those are from an Islamic side, from a Jewish side, from a Christian side, or in this case, uh, from Hamas or the Israeli forces. The message remains very straightforward. Do not engage in, in such cruelties. And if there is actually a state of war, then keep it to the forces and do not um, try and harm children and women and elderly and hospitals and, and whatnot, really. The Prophet Muhammad, uh, may peace be upon him, obviously we know and we've told, said this on, on this radio station time and time again, was a complete man of peace. And we are now going to be playing a, a short clip about uh, the peaceful nature of the Prophet. Please have a listen. With so many attacks on Islam and the Holy Prophet wasallam, let's set the record straight. He was a man of peace. He went through 13 long years of persecution for his beliefs. He was mocked and ridiculed, but he didn't retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he went to Taif to spread the message of Islam, he was pelted with stones until he was bleeding. Yet he did not retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he migrated to Medina, he established the Charter of Medina, allowing the Jews, Christians and Muslims to live together in harmony with full religious freedom because he was a man of peace. And after all the oppression that he faced, when he returned to Mecca as a king, he had the right and the power to punish every single one of them. Yet he forgave them because he was a man of peace. The Holy Prophet said that no white man is superior to a black man, no Arab to a non-Arab. Rather, everyone is equal. He freed slaves and taught to treat them as brothers. He did all of this because he was sent as the Rahmatul Lil Alameen, a mercy for mankind. Indeed, the Holy Prophet was a true man of peace. The Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was a complete and true man of peace, and that remains the teaching of the Holy Quran, the character of the Prophet, may peace be upon him, as well as uh, the practice of all rightly guided Muslims and obviously the Ahmadiyya Muslim community that stands for justice and peace within society. Now, peace building um, and conflict resolution is obviously something that goes hand in hand. The generational gap becomes um, unmistakably apparent in the differences of opinion among leaders from older and younger generations. 
We are going to speak more about this with our guest caller, uh, which is uh, Basma El-Dukhi, Palestinian academic, human rights activist and humanitarian practitioner for more than 14 years in humanitarian and development work with displaced people with uh, UN agencies and international NGOs in the MENA and in the UK. Uh, Basma, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, thank you for, for, for being with us today and obviously discussing this very important uh, topic and raising awareness in this regard. There seems to be a, a generational gap in views regarding the Israel-Palestine conflict. Why do you think younger generations tend to have different perspectives compared to older generations? Uh, I do believe that uh, Generation Z or the younger generations have uh, today more access to multiple diverse sources of information and information checking compared to the older generations. So, uh, the younger generations are more keen and more open to learn and to reflect, ask difficult questions and to seek solutions or to seek answers about these um, uh, questions. And also the role of the social media uh, and also the involvement ability of social media and internet and digital activity with uh, two younger generations helped us to have more accurate and help Palestinian voices to, to reach out to generations outside of Palestine, which is really very interesting comparing to the older generations that depend more on reading books or reading history books or um, or watching some traditional media outlets uh, like TV or a newsletter, listening to radio. So actually, social media have support have helped to bridge the gap between uh, older generation and younger generation, and supported younger generations keen, keen and willingness to learn and questions and to understand situations better by reaching out to the diverse people and making Palestinian uh, voices, particularly from Palestine and Gaza, uh, more reachable to younger generations, for example, here in the UK as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, can you share any insights into the role of social media in shaping public opinion and influencing political discourse around the Israel-Palestine conflict? Yeah, of course, I would like to um, to uh, speak about the importance of the social media, mainly Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, TikTok, and helping Palestinian voices, Palestinian voices uh, in Gaza, particularly, and occupied Palestine, allowing journalists, young sponsors, and normal people to send and to upload videos describing the, the situation and what's happening in Gaza, including the suffering people and the black people and seniors of people speaking in different languages and the media and the social media and the ability to reach multiple and diverse backgrounds of people, mainly younger generation have a lot of places to reach out and speak and speak about the conflict or the genocide and also to raise awareness to educate people about what's happening and to try to offer a balance or also a diverse ground perspective of what's happening comparing to the traditional outlet and sometimes biased and not neutral media outlet. So 
sense what's really is about, for example, offering the opportunity for people from Gaza to speak about what's happening and to ask people, for example, or to demand fire, demand the humanitarian cause, uh, or to demand, for example, or to share information about uh, some of the misinformation campaigns that, that was led by Israel. And it has a lot of people here to understand to understand the situation and even ask questions when they are faced by uh, different uh, um, different different perspectives about what's happening, comparing to what they watch or to what they hear from the media, the traditional media, and also from what they see and hear from uh, the people, the voices of people coming directly from the field from Gaza. Uh, and was really very powerful about how um, how the public opinion and the public discourse have shaped or have shaped by the power of the voices coming from the from Palestine from Gaza using the social media. And also, I would like to say uh, to reflect about this point: uh, the social media, particularly in the occupied, understand and to feel that they are not are not left behind or they are not alone. Uh, sharing, for example, videos about the protests, about the public actions, about the uh, the boycott, uh, the boycott actions that's happening in every corner of the world, and share this and uh, with the Palestinians. And the Palestinians in Gaza are able to see that people are really caring for them. People are really caring for them to have peace, to live in peace and in dignity. Have helped a lot also uh, to encourage Palestinians in Gaza and to give them some hope and some faith in, in humanity as well. So it's really very important. It's like educating people, raising awareness, letting people or giving people a floor and space to ask questions and to seek answers and also for the white people, for the oppressed people to feel that people do care about them. People do do uh, do need to do a lot to also to support them and also giving them that feeling that they are not alone or they are not alone. A lot of people are standing so this is really important, and these are some of the slides that we should always speak about when we speak about the social media and its role in shifting or shaping uh, public discourse and public opinion about the Israeli-Palestine conflict. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, have have there been instances of misinformation or fake news related to this conflict spreading on social media and how do these challenges impact the overall understanding of the issue? Yeah, of course, uh, we had a lot of misinformation and fake news uh, related to recently for example to the to targeting hospitals, uh, for example, killing of children or allowing Syrian aid to access Gaza. We have a lot of campaigns and fake news that are uh, in uh, to these topics. And actually, um, by as I mentioned, the ability for Palestinian voices to speak in different languages and the ability of these voices to reach and to access, to have the proper access and the proper outreach for people outside of Palestine have helped a lot to challenge the status quo and the biases and the misinformation of the traditional media outlets uh, here in the UK and all around the world, and also some of the misinformation and fake news uh, by trying to share or sharing the real facts and the real uh, things that's happening, that are happening at the, on the ground in Gaza, coming directly from the people who are impacted and affected, uh, yani 
impacted and affected by by the genocide, mass killing, mass, mass displacement of the uh, of the of these people have helped a lot also to understand some of the biases, the uh, the lack of um, the lack of professionalism in uh, in sharing uh, what's happening actually, and also in challenging and conducting sometimes, which is really interesting. So you see a lot of activists on the social media conducting some of the, for example, the newsletter titles or the website titles, the hot titles of certain kind of campaigns or taken news by giving the real and the proper news and the proper information directly from the field. Mm-hmm. So it's not to challenge, and not only to challenge, to raise awareness and to encourage people to seek the proper uh, proper and accurate sources of information. And for me, it was very interesting that people start to challenge the status quo of fake news or misinformation by correcting them. Uh, and you can see multiple multiple example, examples on the, in Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, people correcting some of the hot titles of outlets, media outlets, traditional media outlets, and many other also people who used uh, some misinformation or fake news or fake campaigns about the genocide, mass killing, mass that's happening, unfortunately, now we get. And um, now, obviously, because of this influence of the social media, there there, there have been changes in the dynamics. Um, how has this affected the overall discourse and negotiation, or has there been an impact at all? Yes, it has a very positive impact, if you want to say, about the, uh, for the Palestinians. As I mentioned before, it was for the match uh, that Palestinians uh, and this is very important, the voices of people and the perspectives of people are able to reach and are able to have the proper access to a lot of other people from diverse backgrounds all around the world, including here in the UK and mainly the younger generation, which really have impacted to raise awareness and to educate people about the history and the context of Palestine conflict and what's happening uh, and what what happened in Gaza and in Palestine? So it was it was really the notable changes was first of all trying to educate people and raising awareness using non-traditional ways of teaching people and raising awareness and discussing conflict, encouraging Palestinian voices to use uh, different languages and to use social media uh, creatively and effectively to share what's happening, to share information and also to demand ceasefire, to demand humanitarian ability to gather, and also uh, asking people, for example, or encouraging people from all around the world to see, to understand, to ask questions, and to encourage people to do public public support. So writing to their MP, going, uh, participating in protests, I don't know, by cutting efforts, uh, meeting uh, influential people, writing up, attending panel discussions and also these moments and sharing it in the social media to create a kind of public effort and on their government also which is really very important and as I mentioned before it was very important and influential and brings a lot of hope and and light for opinions that these people were sharing these solidarity 
moments and solidarity events and solidarity actions in the social media uh, and Kenyans in Gaza were able to see the, these, uh, these on the social media, giving them hope and some also faith and believe in humanity, in the shared humanity, and that people are not leaving them behind. Even if governments are failing to defend a ceasefire, permanent ceasefire, and the humanitarian aid access to Gaza, people, the normal people like them, like people in Gaza and Palestine, are putting all their most pressure on their government and local officials to ask and to demand for it. And for the first time, we start to hear, for example, statements like in the apartheid system, in the oppression of free Palestine, and also in the fight of Gaza, in the public discourse, the negotiations, and also even in the, in the public language and narrative of people. And this is what this is done because uh, or this is what's done because of the power of the social media and the kind of messages that Palestinians uh, and uh, every uh, human being, free human being, uh, who's against discrimination, apartheid, and <coughs> and not just were able to influence. <coughs> also, some of the voices were prevented in the social media and really have been denied access. People were very creative to find alternative way to still speak up and to raise awareness and to share and to do their best to help Palestinian voices and to amplify the Palestinian voices in Gaza, uh, in the world, all, are, all over the all over the world. <coughs> for the first time, if I want to add, for the first time, uh, we have also people and Palestinians themselves also were aware or was aware now. Palestinians become aware that the language the war now is the war on narrative language. And Palestinians have to be very careful how to describe and what to say about their blood, and the history and the context, what's happening, and how to share this with other people from diverse backgrounds, diverse understanding, uh, and also a diverse uh, interest on, on what's happening in Palestine. And for the people of the world uh, to understand how they can support Palestine and Palestine by using the proper and the proper map uh, and to correct the narrative sometimes and to correct the language of traditional media and other people when we speak about Palestinians and uh, white people. Okay. Uh, Basma, I th- thank you very much for, for, for being with us and, and, and shedding some light on, on this very important topic. And um, I, I wish you a lovely day ahead. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. So um, we were just speaking with uh, Basma al-Dukhi, who is a Palestinian academic, human rights activist and a humanitarian uh, humanitarian practitioner for more than 14 years in humanitarian and development work with displaced people with UN agencies and international NGOs in the uh, uh, MENA and the UK. Um, we will now be taking a very short break, but please do stay with us and uh, we will carry on shortly after this short break. Life of Muhammad, peace be upon him. High moral qualities. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was always very patient in adversity. He was never discouraged by adverse circumstances, nor did he permit any personal desire to get a hold over him. It has been related that his father had died before his birth and his mother died while he was still a little child. Up to the age of eight, he was in the guardianship of his grandfather and after the latter's death, 
he was taken care of by his uncle, Abu Talib, both on account of natural affection and also because he had been specially admonished in that behalf by his father, Abu Talib always watched over his nephew with care and indulgence, but his wife was not affected by these considerations to the same degree. It often happened that she would distribute something among her own children, leaving out their little cousin. If Abu Talib chanced to come into the house on such an occasion, he would find his little nephew sitting apart, a perfect picture of dignity, and without a trace of sulkiness or grievance on his face. The uncle, yielding to the claims of affection and recognizing his responsibility, would run to the nephew, clasp him to his bosom and cry out, Do pay attention to this child of mine also. Do pay attention to this child of mine also. Such incidents were not uncommon, and those who were witnesses to them were unanimous in their testimony that the young Muhammad, peace be upon him, never gave any indication that he was in any way affected by them, or that he was in any sense jealous of his cousins. Later in life, when he was in a position to do so, he took upon himself the care and upbringing of two of his uncle's sons, Ali, peace be upon him, and Jafir, peace be upon him, and discharged this responsibility in the most excellent manner. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, throughout his life had to encounter a succession of bitter experiences. He was born an orphan, his mother died while he was still a small child, and he lost his grandfather at the age of eight years. After marriage, he had to bear the loss of several children, one after the other, and then his beloved and devoted wife, Khadija, died. Some of the wives he married after Khadija's death died during his lifetime, and towards the close of his life, he had to bear the loss of his son, Ibrahim. He bore all these losses and calamities cheerfully, and none of them affected in the least degree either his high resolve or the urbanity of his disposition. His private sorrows never found vent in public, and he always met everybody with a benign countenance and treated all alike with uniform benevolence. On one occasion, he observed a woman who had lost a child, occupied in loud mourning, over her child's grave. He admonished her to be patient and to accept God's will as supreme. The woman did not know that she was being addressed by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and replied, If you had ever suffered the loss of a child as I have, you would have realized how difficult it is to be patient under such an affliction. The Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, observed, I have suffered the loss not of one, but of seven children, and passed on. Except when he referred to his own losses or misfortunes in this indirect manner, he never cared to dwell upon them, nor did he permit them in any manner to interfere with his unceasing service to mankind and his cheerful sharing of their burdens. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back. Um, and peace be upon you. Assalamu alaikum. We are discussing the Palestine Israel issue and the varied opinion about the issue that is in different generations. Um, we were also just speaking uh, with Basma El Duhi and she laid great emphasis on the uh, information or misinformation 
that is being provided by different media outlets. And that also reminded me of an instance where um, it is said that Imam Bukhari, who is um, one or the biggest uh, hadith collectors, so hadith are the narrations of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Um, so Imam Bukhari was the collector of those hadith. And uh, once he went and tr- he heard that someone had a narration from the Prophet, so he traveled hundreds of miles uh, to reach that person. And when he got there, he saw that very person trying to deceive an animal in in order to sort of take him to another place or or get something done. And uh, Imam Bukhari just immediately turned away and he said, if this man or this person cannot be honest with an animal, how do I expect him to be honest with me? So this is the emphasis that is laid within Islam on, on honesty and providing the right news, the right information, so that not just the opinion of current generations can be shaped rightly, but also uh, so that history um, remains honest and future generations can make assessments accordingly and they are well informed. So that is the job of media outlets as well as, as, well as social medias today um, to put aside any agenda there is. And uh, if everyone was being honest, then we would not have this very, uh, variety in opinions. Rather, everyone would be on the same page. Um, now, coming back to uh, the discussion we were having earlier, generational shifts in cultural and, and identity dynamics can significantly influence perspectives on the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict. Language, obviously, is an essential aspect of cultural identity. Older generations may have grown up speaking different languages or dialects than younger generations. For example, um, among Palestinians, older generations may primarily speak Arabic, while younger generations might be more fluent in multiple languages, including English. Now, this linguistic shift can impact communication and engagement with the outside world, as younger generations may have better access to global media and online platforms. Younger generations may be more open to exploring hybrid identities that incorporate elements from different cultures or backgrounds. This can create a more complex relationship with the conflict as individuals may identify with multiple groups of perspective or, or perspectives, making them less likely to adopt a rigid stance. This is evident by the fact that many people in the normal public of Israel also want to stop the war with Palestine. And this is also that is uh, being brought to us by many uh, social media outlets, obviously. Um, younger generations may have stronger um, transnational uh, connections and uh, networks through education, travel, uh, and diaspora communities. These connections um, can lead to a broader understanding of the world and may influence attitudes toward um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, potentially fostering a more global perspective. For example, many young people engage in international activism and volunteer work with non-governmental organizations, uh, the NGOs, 
they may participate in humanitarian missions or uh, advocacy campaigns related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So these experiences expose them to the complex realities on the ground and connect them with a global community of activists working for peace and justice. So the another aspect is obviously, uh, as I was mentioning, I was alluding to earlier, uh, the peace building and the conflict resolution, the, the generational gap becomes uh, unmistakably apparent in the differences of opinion and among leaders from older and younger generations. While the younger generation often advocates for a two-state solution, emphasizing diplomacy and negotiation, the older generation may lean towards more aggressive approaches, including the use of military force to combat group like, uh, groups like Hamas. But obviously, this is not something that goes across the board. Uh, it can vary, but the tendencies that are uh, being shown, especially the, the, the tendencies and the uh, trends that we see on social media, just this goes to show that younger generation may be more open to a two-state solution. Um, these uh, diverging leadership philosophies highlight not only generational disparities, but also um, the evolving strategies and priorities that leaders bring to the complex, uh, complex task of resolving this conflict. This underscores how generational dynamics uh, permeate not only public opinion but also the strategies and actions of key stakeholders in the region. The political solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict is further hindered by the fact that Western leaders, often representing the older generation, do not consistently condemn Israel uh, for actions that are perceived as violating international law. The discrepancy in the approach to international law and justice is a notable point of contention and is strongly articulated by uh, the younger generations. So the apparent mismatch between the principles of uh, adhering to international law and the actual enforcement of these principles contributes to disparities in how the conflict is addressed and understood. The advice on peacebuilding by the worldwide head of the Yemeni Muslim community is as follows. He states, With great regret it must be said that today it is the ill fortune of many Muslim countries that they are no longer united. Members of the public are fighting amongst themselves. Citizens are also fighting with governments whilst governments are inflicting cruelty upon their public. Therefore, not only has unity been lost, but great cruelties and injustices are being uh, perpetrated. The result of the lack of unity is that non-Muslim countries now have the confidence to do whatever they please against the Muslims. And this is, a very, this is the very reason that Israel is currently engaged in killing scores of innocent Palestinians in the cruelest manner. If the Muslims were united and followed the path of God, then the collective strength of Muslim nations is so great that this cruelty could never have taken place. And again, um, Islam lays great emphasis on being unified or uh, standing united, but not standing united in every aspect, but really standing united for peace, for justice and for what's right 
so if if the muslim uh, countries and the muslim leaderships across the globe were united situation could have been resolved or we wouldn't even be in, in this in this situation to 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 start with so in in uh, conclusion the palestinian american scholar uh, rashid khalidi told the guardian here is a generational change taking place with young people having an entirely different set of views they consume different media i think they are more educated more worldly and better informed than their leaders while there are many reasons why there is there are generational gaps the main ones um are increased education and knowledge due to a global community that is created by the internet and social media i'd like to end this with a quote uh, again by the worldwide head of the muslim community and he states that may allah enable the major powers to fulfill the obligations of justice on both sides of the conflict in order to establish peace it should not be that they become lenient towards one side at the cost of the other may they not increase in injustice and may we see peace with our own with our eyes in the world and may Allah really show us um the 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 fulfillment of of these prayers that brings us to the end of of today's show uh, we just uh, we did discuss um a lot of information but i i think something that we really do take away uh from uh, this discussion we had today is that information now is available a lot more than it used to be 20 30 50 or 100 years ago so we can shape our opinions differently now we can access information from various platforms we can to some extent make sure that we are rightly informed and uh, we can also make sure because in today's day and age with the use of uh, social media specifically speaking we all become some sort of news outlet within our own circles so we can at least make sure that we don't uh, spread false news again a a uh, core message of islamic teaching is that we we should not be spreading any falsehood at all we should completely abstain from this so if we are given a piece of information that we don't know the right sources about or we don't know whether that is right or not just simply stay quiet we don't need to take that in at all and uh, let it influence our minds or uh, make us influence uh, the 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 minds and thoughts of others around us so if everyone takes this responsibility upon themselves we could create peace in society at a rapid pace if everyone was really to follow these teachings of the holy quran and the prophet muhammad may peace and blessings of allah be upon him um we today we discussed uh, the issue of cancer risk and the in- inequality when it comes to different uh, demographics and uh, uh, across the uk and in the second hour we 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 spoke about the um, israel gaza uh, israel palestine issue and the opinions that various age groups have about this if you missed uh, any of this you can always uh, go back to our website voiceofislam.co.uk and have a listen we do upload them very quickly so please don't miss out and please make sure to come back tomorrow for the drive time show again we will again be discussing very interesting very important topics for you The uh drive time show today 
was produced by Sayyidah Tahdiya Hassan and uh, Laiba Mubashar. Thank you very much to our producers, as well as to our tech team behind the scenes, uh, Armaghan Ahmed, who has been doing an amazing job, as always. That brings us towards the end of, of uh, today's show. Uh, thank you very much, Jazakumullah, for, for being with us, and we are hoping that you will join us tomorrow. Till then, Assalamu Alaikum. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. <laughs>